Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Child labor was a thing of the past, or so we thought for many decades, but recent stories about children working in America, often in unsafe conditions, are the leading edge of a push by Republican interests to actually loosen the laws that prevent child labor. We're going to talk today about what's happening here, why, and whether we are really headed back to a time when America's work culture valued profits over child protection. It's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined us on this wonderful spring day. It's something of an understatement, really, to say that today's Republican Party is different than the GOP of even just a few years ago. The Republican Party was once the party of traditional conservatism in favor of things like minimal government regulation of industry or private lives. They liked a strong military. And of course, they loved low taxes. They're still for a lot of those things, but now you'd just as likely associate the GOP with a vast and pretty tyrannical social agenda, one that pushes back really hard against the social and cultural progress that has unfolded over the past few decades. I think it's fair to say the GOP is anti-civil rights and even doesn't much want to teach young people about the history of inequality in our nation. The GOP is against the full protection of rights for the LGBTQ community, an issue that has really grown and blossomed in the last decade or so. And this is an interesting change. The GOP is anti immigration, and many of its elected leaders are just outright xenophobic when it comes to thinking about American pluralism. You don't have to go too far back in history to find Republican champions of immigration in our country. What it boils down to really, is that this is a party that's about raw power, and not just in the political sense. It's also about power in the cultural and social sense. And it is protecting the powerful and their franchises, and that means the less powerful among us are sometimes victims or targets of their ideologies and their policies. Which brings us to the recent stories, some of them awful, harrowing stories, about the reemergence of child labor in this country. Yeah, child labor. Something that went away, or at least we thought it went away, a really long time ago in America, but has been rearing its head again. 
There are bills in states all around the Midwest, Iowa, Ohio, Nebraska, Minnesota, to actually lower age restrictions for work and soften safety protocols in some workplaces. Now, some of these bills are pretty innocent, like ones that want to allow teens to work later into the summer. But there are others, like in Wisconsin, that would do things like allow 14-year-olds to serve alcohol in bars and restaurants. And there are some stories that are even more shocking. Recently, the New York Times and the Washington Post found exploited migrant children to be working illegally in some American workplaces. And the U.S. Labor Department actually found two 10-year-olds working at a McDonald's in Louisville, Kentucky, sometimes until 2 a.m. Now, there are a lot of theories as to why some analysts and many Republicans are suggesting that we loosen labor laws. Lots of them say that this is necessary to help businesses deal with the large worker shortage. And, of course, it's more profitable to employ young people, underage people, than it is adults. It's about profit in many ways. But is that all that this is about, or is something else going on? What's causing this push for Republicans across the country to suggest allowing younger workers into the workplace to do sometimes quite dangerous work? And how much would these bills in these legislatures in these many states really change the workplace in America to be a more dangerous place, a less forgiving place than it has been for a really long time? That's where we begin the conversation today with this idea of the reemergence of child labor in America. We've got two guests with us to help us understand what's going on. Rachel Cohen is a senior policy reporter for Vox, and she has been writing about this Republican push to weaken our child labor laws. Rachel, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Good morning. And also with us is Dennis Darnoy. He is a Republican political consultant here in Michigan. He tracks voter data and other issues. He joins us from time to time to talk about the things that are going on inside the Republican Party. Dennis, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you for having me. So, Rachel, I'm going to start with you. Put all this into context for us. Uh, what kinds of labor laws are being loosened in which states and how big a deal is this? I, in the open there, talked about it being a fundamental change, a fundamental shift away from years of policy in this country that said children shouldn't be working. Am I overstating what's happening? I think it's important for listeners to understand that we do not actually have a great picture of the state of child labor in the US, which is a which is a huge problem. So while we do have evidence that there were that there have been increases in labor violations documented by the Department of Labor since 2015, since 2018, 
We also know that there are a lot more investigations that are not happening. And in fact, in 2002, the department found more children, you know, identified doing working illegally than they did last year. So while there's been an increase in violations found, we don't have a great picture of what the real trend is. And that's for a couple of reasons. One reason is that, you know, the American Community Survey, which is run by the census, only asks about employment for workers 16 and up. So that already excludes a lot of the kind of Americans we're trying to learn about. Um, and under federal labor law, work permits are not required. So some states require work permits, which is, I think we'll get into this later in the show, but that's one area that some of these new state laws are trying to repeal because some states do require youth to register, you know, with the state that they're working. And, but as states, not all states have them and the states that are getting rid of them, that's taking away another paper trail that we have to kind of get a picture. So it's a it's an issue because there seems to be concerning evidence that this is a big problem, like the New York Times investigation finding all of these illegal children, uh, migrant youth working, but it's coupled with the fact that we don't actually have a great picture of what the situation is. And that's adding a lot of confusion and chaos to these bills that are cropping up in states. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, let's talk about some of the bills that are being proposed in some states to loosen child labor laws. What do they look like? And are they bills that, in your estimation, would actually put children in danger? So the bills that we're seeing really started to come up last year. The first two passed in New Hampshire, New Jersey in 2022. And this year we're seeing a bunch more come up in Midwestern uh, Republican states um, or by Republican legislatures in purple states. And I think one of the challenging aspects of understanding the story is for a lot of people who are watching these laws, they, with I think legitimate reason, do not believe that the some of the rules being proposed to roll back this, you know, this year or last year are, is the is the last we're going to see. A lot of people say think this is just the first step to a broader unraveling of these protections that we've had in place for a long time. So on on some cases, and you and you got into this in your introduction, some individual rules might not seem so egregious. You know, certainly some families might not mind if they're teenager works until 9 p.m. on a school night as opposed to 7 p.m. Some families will, um, some families wouldn't. But there are these sort of other broader areas that are causing a lot more concern for people, like trying to expand the kinds of jobs young people can work in, including some that are definitely more dangerous. And I think a lot of labor experts and advocates worry that if we make it easier for young people to work longer hours in more types of jobs, we are sending a message that our already lax enforcement of these laws is going to be even more relaxed. And there's a lot of research about the impact of working, say, more than 20 hours a week if you're in school or college. Like it, it, There is a level at which working on top of school becomes really difficult if you are working you know, more than 20 hours a week. So those are the kinds of 
concerns people have, in addition to sort of physical safety, there's a concern about academic performance and what that might mean. And there's a concern that this is just sort of the opening salvo to a larger push to roll back even more protections, even if this year maybe people don't find all the individual provisions as egregious as others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dennis Starno, I want to bring you into the conversation here and have you talk about what is going on in the Republican Party that is inspiring this push to reshape labor law in this country? Um, what is what is animating this discussion inside the, the Republican Party? Well, as Ms. Cohen pointed out and, and we've talked about, a lot of this has to do with individual preference uh, and family preferences. Um, and what you see, and, and this is more of a traditional conservative viewpoint, is is pushing back against government overreach. And what we see in a lot of these bills, um, the underlying ideology behind it is to say that you know we would like to see parents determine um, what they would like to see you know happen with their children and give parents more rights uh, than than government. Um, having individuals work, you can, you know, look and see the benefits of, of just individual success uh, from enjoying a paycheck, from taking pride in doing work, um, increasing, you know, chi- a child's sense of independence. And when you look at um, some of the other issues going on, especially in teenagers' lives and young adults' lives and, and a lot of the dangers of just sitting on a phone or online activity, uh, the argument is there to be made that isn't it more productive to use your time by working um, and having a job um, and and doing these things and, and and again earning your own independence and I think that's something that we've you know we've seen a lot through uh, the GOP traditionally that they are in favor of less government regulation and more individual choice uh, there is a value on independence and establishing a work ethic um, as you pointed out there is a transition point uh, right now an inflection point. Uh, within the party, within the Republican Party. So there are uh, going to be those moments when traditional conservative values uh, cross paths with the uh, the more, you know, modern GOP. Um, and it's, you know, I think unfortunate that at times the, the two are going to be uh, just put under the one larger umbrella. Um, but again, I think what you see is a lot of these ideas coming from uh, traditional conservative policy uh, and think tanks, um, and, and again, just moving you know, back in, in favor of parental rights over uh, government involvement. I mean, that's an interesting way to frame it, right? That, that the issue of children in workplaces is fundamentally a parenting issue and not in a workplace or industry issue. Uh, and and I'm going to go back again to, you know, an earlier time in this country when there was a pretty big argument about uh, about the the presence of children in in workplaces, and there were lots of things that changed in the law um, and and also in just kind of custom uh, that eliminated child labor uh, because. I guess the the, the way to, the best way to put it is that it was deemed that this is not a parenting issue, or that the parenting issues here uh, are inferior to 
the, the, the regulatory concerns, mostly about safety, uh, but also about the idea of exploitation. Um, is this an effort to kind of relitigate that discussion or that argument and, and, and go back? I mean, you're right that, that in that context, it's a traditional conservative uh, argument. At the same time, um, you could argue that the, the, the push inside the Republican Party to, quote, protect uh, innocent life uh, seems to be in conflict with the idea of sending children off to work. I guess I'm, I'm wondering what the, I guess what the end game is here. What, what, what's, what is being rethought or negotiated here uh, in this new push? Sure. And I think in, in that regard, I mean, conservatives look at um, the market. And so when you talk about protections, I mean, certainly, you know, companies are not going to be putting minor children in situations that uh, their insurance company would not provide liability coverage for. So you have a certain set of protections there. Uh, schools still require parental permission for work-study credit. So there is another layer there that would offer up protection. And not just in the area of, of child labor, but I think obviously uh, the biggest one right now, the focus is, is education. What you do see, as you put it, a relitigation of really who should be determining uh, the direction um, and, and future uh, lives of, of children. And there's been, and across a lot of institutions, of course, but there's been sort of a, a lack of uh, faith, a, a lack of trust in a lot of the institutions that generally in the past have shaped um, our child, children's lives, their, their destinies. And so what you see within the Republican Party is, is almost trying to reclaim control of who has the larger impact on 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 children's lives and again i think there are those within the party who you know really do see rather than becoming dependent on a state or a school going out there earning earning a paycheck earning your work um and taking pride in that and again increasing a sense of independence and it's independence driven from a family's viewpoint um, from an individual's viewpoint versus a, a government's viewpoint and so there is a very very strong um, uh, I guess divide right now within the country um, in terms of what are the roles of public institutions in the lives of individuals and especially right now in the lives of individual children. Mm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we come back. We're going to continue this conversation about child labor in our country with Rachel Cohen of Vox and Dennis Darnoy, a Republican political consultant. We want to get going with you, the listeners, on the phones and on social. Uh, give us a sense of what you make about these stories that we're seeing about children working uh, alongside adults in American workplaces. What do you make of that? What age do you think is too young? To work? What kinds of jobs do you think children shouldn't be allowed to do? And do you think the current structure of labor law in this country has it right, or that we can find more leeway, more opportunity for young people to work by tweaking it a little? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we can include you in the show that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. 
talking about child labor in America and a push from some Republicans to reframe the idea of child labor in America. Maybe not make it uh, such a hands-off issue. Maybe expand the opportunities for young people uh, to be working in our country. Our guest is Rachel Cohen. She is a senior policy reporter for Vox. She has been writing about the Republican push to weaken some child labor laws. We've also got Dennis Darnoy with us. He's a Republican political consultant here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, He studies a lot of voter data, but also joins us uh, from time to time to talk about kind of the internal struggles and tensions in the Republican Party. We want to hear from you as well. Uh, Colin, tell us what you make of this push to to think differently about uh, child labor. Uh, make it easier for children to actually work. You can join us on the phone. 313-577-1019 is the number. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we can work you into the conversation. Uh, Before we get to our listeners, Rachel, I want to come back to you. Dennis was talking uh, before the break about this idea of empowering parents more and that that is one of the driving forces behind this, giving parents more more agency over uh, what is appropriate for uh, their children and what is not. Of course, that bumps up against the 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 absolute inspiration for child labor laws, which is to protect uh, vulnerable people from exploitation. So I I do want to have you talk a little about the the children who would be most vulnerable uh, under some of the bills that are proposed in in some of the states. We have seen stories, for instance, of migrant children uh, being discovered in workplaces. I would think that's a category that you'd be particularly worried about. But Talk about others who would be uh, who would be less protected than they are now uh, if some of these bills became law. Yeah, thank you for the question. And you know, I think it is important to say that when when the U.S. government started requiring compulsory 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 schooling. Uh, Lots of parents didn't like that either. They thought it's their right to get to keep their kids home from school to help with raise money for their family and work on their farms or work, you know, in their jobs and small businesses. And so there's been this really longstanding push and pull throughout American history over like what rights do parents have over their children. And so part of child labor rules and requirements for schools are to protect children. And part of them are also because the state says, you know, we think it's important for for our country to prioritize education for young people. And, and so there's this battle that has just never really been fully resolved. Mm-hmm. And you definitely have some parents today thinking some of the rules restricting their kids or teenagers are paternalistic or not needed or arbitrary. And that's what we're fighting over. But I think it's also the case, and this is what your question gets at, that there are, you know, not all parents have put their young, put their kids in safe conditions, have maybe the same priorities for education as others do. And, and we are trying to figure out what's the balance between giving kids their, all the, tools and strengths and skills that they need to succeed and how much, and we see these fights with all sorts of things, whether it's vaccines or or other kinds of healthcare. And, you know, especially with 
migrant youth and vulnerable youth that are more likely to be exploited, some of these employers are paying cash to the parents themselves. Hmm. And so there's this, there is a risk and concern about just giving all authority back to parents because not all parents are going to put their kids and teenagers in the safest positions, or they might have more of an interest in saying, you know, we need money. You you can't go to school anymore, or it, I don't care if your schoolwork suffers. You need to be working six hours a day on a Thursday afternoon after school. And so those are some of the real challenges. Um, but it is, as you were discussing before, this difficulty because while child labor rings really, I think, poorly and, you know, raises a lot of, lot of alarm, people feel pretty positively about the idea about teamwork and youth employment is mm. often a positive policy goal that even liberals push for. And so there's a lot of language that we use in this conversation and how people talk about it can be confusing. And we know from polling that while parents don't necessarily know the details of their state child labor laws, a lot of Americans and parents feel generally positive about the idea about teen jobs. Like they think it instills good work habits and financial skills and sense of responsibility and independence. And so these laws are coming up against that sort of political context, which can be challenging for the people who are trying to raise awareness about the risks of these laws, because a lot of parents think, well, what's what's so bad about a teen job? And, and these laws are, that's a bit of a distraction, I think, from some of the more concerning things that advocates are trying to at least put on the table and have a discussion about. Sure, sure. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. And you can go to social, to Twitter, hashtag us, and we can include you in the show that way. Big Neo on Twitter says Republicans are pushing this because they want the have-nots to believe that they have to work long, hard hours to survive while their children are being taught that education is what will allow them to thrive in this world. The double standard, he says, is real. Boomi on Twitter says, pushing what has been known as illegal labor to children so they can have their holier-than-thou narrative and also simultaneously keep costs low has always been the motive. Legally, kids don't have to be paid the state minimum wage here in Michigan, seven twenty-five. Uh, is their price tag. Uh, let's go to the phones here and start today with Peter in Detroit. Peter, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. Hey. Stephen, this is just about the most absurd idea among a litany of absurd ideas from the Republican Party. Maya Angelou said, when someone tells you who they are, you should believe them the first time. Saying for a very long time, the business, party, pro-business, well, this is a, the reason in the 19th in the ninth century and in the 19th just it's because they're cheaper and that's what this is about it's about ma- getting cheaper labor for businesses they claim to be pro-family but fam wouldn't you want to pay parents more so the kids could go to school but how about your pro-family is your parents rightness when Trans kids aren't allowed to, to their parents aren't allowed to help them make it. This, oh, we're going to protect the kids from that, but you're going to let them work in a factory? That is absurd. Mm. And, it's a, and it's offensive that come to everybody else and say, oh, we're with this. That's just. 
Uh, so, Peter, uh, uh, your phone was breaking up just a little there, but but I got, I think, most of what, what, what you're saying. I certainly get the gist of what you're saying. I, I think maybe the most interesting point you're making, though, is the inconsistency of this position saying, hey, let's let parents decide on their own what happens with uh, with their children. Let's let parents be in charge of their their children's lives. Uh, but it seems that it's really only in this context of work that uh, in many other cases, for instance, uh, uh, gender and gender identity, uh, Republicans are saying they don't want parents to make their own decisions and they don't want families uh, to decide. And so that suggests that maybe this is just about money, that that because here you're talking about higher profits for businesses if they are employing children, if you're talking about uh, you know other advantages to, to employers from in, employing children, uh, that it makes sense. So Dennis, how would you how would you respond to that? Well, what I would say is, you know, I do agree with, with Ms. Cohn when she was talking about all authority uh, and, you know, vesting all authority in parents, not necessarily the best idea. And I, and I would agree with that. And I think where conservatives look at this this issue um, and, and they say not all authority, and certainly that's why we have the Fair Labor Standards Act. So if you if you really want to, you know, make sure that there are protections, um, you know, increase uh, you know, penalties and and fines at, at the at the federal level, you know, it, strengthen existing laws and actually enforcing it. If this is a priority for the federal government, then the budget should reflect that. I think that the, the argument, again, goes back to having individual states creating their own laws. Um, and if the voters of those states support the elected officials passing these laws, then that's, you know, that is that state's rights. I mean, uh, we have talked about predominantly Midwest states, but at the beginning, we also mentioned that it's New Hampshire, New Jersey that are looking at some of these laws. So it's those are certainly not Republican strongholds. So when we, you know, there, there is a balance that can be struck uh, between giving parents rights uh, over the decisions that they want to make as it pertains to their own child working, while also saying there is a role uh, to be played not only in the market, but also um, at, a, at a limited federal level. And if this is a priori priority of the, the federal government, then they should enforce the existing laws, they should work to strengthen the laws where there is, you know, lacks oversight. And again, you're always going to hear the issue about budgets, then increase the penalties and the fines for, for violating these things. Um, and, and that way you're generating revenue for the department as well. But what about the, the question about consistency across issues, right? Uh, if we're for more parental input and control over their children's lives, why isn't that in true in every sense? And why wouldn't that be true, for instance, in the, the narrative around, um, you know, uh, changing uh, views about and, and approaches to gender identity? Uh, Republicans are dead set against that and, and in, in many cases want to interfere with uh, parents and their children and in families uh, to prevent that from happening why isn't why isn't that uh, the same in their eyes as the the choice to have your child work or not 
Well, I would say it's, for me, it's difficult to comment on individual level decisions when it comes to issues uh, such as that. What I would say is what we see is the argument being more against that, uh, you know, those issues being discussed and taught in school and parental rights being stripped away in terms of allowing teachers to uh, not even inform parents as to conversations conversations and decisions being made by by children of that age whether or not obviously those conversations are, are taking place within a individual family structure that's not something I can comment on but I would say that where this argument receives the most um, attention the most media coverage the most online coverage is in those areas where it seems to be that that is being dictated to the parents that they must accept this uh, you know this direction or you know this kind of um, you know focus rather than that being a decision made within the home so again we're going back to that a formal government structure making decisions or taking actions that impact the parents ability to weigh in on on that and yes there are going to be situations where um, individual families that discussion is not going to be um, one that is, you know, conducted easily or necessarily balanced. Um, but again, I think there there are families, who, and and the parental rights argument is that is still a conversation to be had within the confines of the home, not within the the school walls. Mm, yeah. Uh, again, Peter, really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Let's go next to Chris in Detroit. Chris, welcome to the show. Um, hello, Stephen. And hello, Detroit, uh, and Metropolitan, and wherever else. Uh, what I'm saying is basically uh, parents and corporations are looking at children and kids as slaves uh, for economic reasons. And uh, the thing is, is to not do so, uh, we should establish trusts for households, firms, and institutions to take away the economic factor, especially when uh, automation is taken and AI is trying to take off and things, we need to step away from the pedophobia and allow people to actually become themselves uh, uh, in a way that is loving and not marginalizing so so chris i i just want to make sure i'm i'm hearing you right you're saying that we should we should do better by families financially to prevent this from even from even being a question is that right do better by our corporate corporate entities as well mm. like like the tin man we have to give them a heart you know what i'm saying <laughs> the only way they will have that is trust yeah. Look at how the businesses that have trust established for them, how they operate. Look at how the families that have trust established for them, how they operate. Yeah. Institutions, for whatever reason, don't have trust established for them. You know what I'm saying? And they need this so that they aren't parasitic and that corporations aren't parasitic and that families aren't parasitic upon each other. Yeah, Chris, I really appreciate the call and that uh, that perspective. Uh, Rachel, I, I do want to talk about the the current context for businesses and the way it is 
driving this, right? Uh, the worker shortage that exists, uh, the difficulty that, uh, that that businesses still have, uh, rebounding from uh, rebounding from the pandemic and the disruption there. Uh, th- those are background players, I think, in in this in this conversation, and maybe uh, the reason that people are paying maybe closer and more uh, more apt attention to it right now. Absolutely, um, as we so there is this more conservative ideological motivation that we've been talking about about parents' rights, but absolutely the hiring shortage, the scramble and competition for workers since coming out of the pandemic is really a huge factor behind some of these bills because that's gotten a lot of the business groups to be lobbying lawmakers and saying, you know, this is a this is a clear, easy way to help us. Don't you want to help struggling businesses? Don't you want to support youth employment? And so a lot of lawmakers are talking about the bills in all of those sorts of terms, all of those aspects about helping kids, helping businesses, an economic fix. Um, so when we know that there are groups like the National uh, Independent Small Business Groups have been pushing it and um, big and small businesses have, have really been seeing this as a way to help them in what has been a tough time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Rachel Cohen and Dennis Darnoy, it was great to have both of you here to talk about uh, this issue. Thanks so much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to stay on the topic of politics, but we're going to switch to talking about care work. We're going to talk with an activist and with Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib about what they're trying to do to pass legislation that better supports care workers. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining us. During his campaign for president, President Joe Biden talked about changing a lot of things. One thing he made sure to prioritize was his desire to invest more in care work. In the summer of 2020, Biden said he wanted the United States to commit $775 billion to expand access for caregiving and lower its cost. Well, he wasn't able to do that, as many of the things in his Build Back Better plan got refashioned or just cut out, really, in the Inflation Reduction Act. But that doesn't mean that Biden has left care work off his agenda altogether. Last month, he signed an executive order that includes more than 50 directives to many cabinet-level agencies to expand access to affordable care and provide care workers more support. Locally, there are a number of people who have been pushing for more care work investment. To talk about that, we've got Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib here. She is a representative of Michigan's 12th district. She founded the Mama's Congressional Caucus. Uh, Rashida, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. 
Also with us is Danielle Atkinson. She is the founding director of Mothering Justice, which advocates for mothers of color uh, on, uh, to influence policy on behalf of themselves and their families. We are still trying to connect, I guess, with uh, Danielle, but we do have Rashida here. So, uh, Congresswoman, tell us a little about why you originally started the Mamas Congressional Caucus and what its platform is. What are the policies that support care workers? Well, Congressional uh, Congressional Mamas Caucus uh, was created in July 2022. It was really a way to kind of respond to the fact that we did not uh, get uh, access to paid leave, child care, a number of those issues that you talked about. If anything, during the pandemic exposed just how broken those safety nets were or that they didn't exist at all for mothers uh, in our country. And so, you know, we always hear right in, in, in the halls of Congress, constant conversation around policy uh, you know, about mothers that impact mothers, but it's not done with mothers. And so the Congressional Mamas Caucus came with the partnership Mothering Justice. I mean, this is a national organization that's headquartered in Michigan who has been fighting for paid leave at the state level, nationally with other organizations and coalitions. Um, I just know that, you know, we are one of the only major nations in the world that does not offer a single day of paid family medical leave. More than 30 million workers in our country, 67% of them are low-wage workers, again, don't have a single paid leave day. And that's really impacting the quality of life for our families and their ability to thrive. And so the Congressional Mamas Caucus is making sure that, again, this care uh, economy and the, these issues that uh, Bill That Better did try to address is still at the forefront and still debated um, as, as again, as they're talking about economic justice and a number of other issues in, in Congress. Yeah. Uh, you and I have talked several times about your concerns about the the, the compromises that were made uh, to get the Inflation Reduction Act passed and uh, the things that were in Build Back Better that wouldn't be part of, of that compromise. You warned everyone up front that uh, these things – just probably wouldn't wouldn't happen. It's got to be a little frustrating, at least on your part, uh, that you're still uh, having to make that point. But but talk about how the president and the party, the Democratic Party, uh, ha- have broadly uh, done more in your in your view uh, to to get more support for mothers and parents. Are there some victories that uh, we can point to at this? Yeah, point? I mean. I know it expired, but the child tax credit was such an incredibly important anti-poverty, mm-hmm. really economic justice tool. It worked so well. People are still studying the impact, the really long, meaningful impact on our children and families, especially mothers uh, that are, uh, you know, have a number of kids that, again, are struggling uh, to be above poverty or struggling, again, as working class uh, families in our country. And so child tax credit was such a great, again, tool, if anything, showed just how successful the federal government can be in really addressing some of these root causes of poverty and to really, again, help every child thrive right at the beginning of birth. And so, you know, this is extension of that work. You know, I'm incredibly proud that at least the president is not waiting for Congress to act, that he decided to do the executive uh, order. Um, and this executive order addresses, you know, issues around child care, paid family, medical leave, uh, even reproductive justice and so many other things that are again, impacting our families. And we're having a briefing this, you know, this week uh, with the Democratic Women's Caucus. We're jointly doing it with the Congressional Mamas Caucus to talk to folks right at the front line um, that are working with President Biden on the implementation of executive orders. It doesn't go far enough. We know that. But at least I think 
it is very clear that uh, the Biden administration finds this, you know, incredibly helpful. We know that so many women haven't actually gone back um, to work um, because of the cost of child care mm-hmm. and, and so forth. And, you know, it's, it's important to say this, Stephen, this is just my mom hat right now. The fact that people found the money to open up our schools. I mean, they, they just they said, got to open up the schools because we didn't have child care. They had to get people back to work. Mm-hmm. They found the resources and the money to do that. But when it comes to the fact that right now, I mean, the cost of raising a child in our country are among the highest in the world. And that we, you know, that our policies and social safety nets too often leave behind families, especially families of color, families, working class families that are in my district, that all of a sudden we're talking about where we're going to find the resources. I just don't think we have an option anymore. We have to do more in regards to supporting mothers in our country. Yeah. Uh, We're talking about care work, uh, expanding care work, more support for care work with uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who represents Michigan's 12th district uh, in Congress. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Let us know what it's like as a caregiver right now. Uh, How hard is it for you to try to provide care for your family? What kinds of supports would make your life easier? What do you make of things like paid family leave policies and the expanded child tax credit? What other things do you think the government should be doing? 313 577 1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Rashida, I want to talk about what other things you think might even uh, be possible, given that Democrats no longer control both houses uh, in Congress. What, what are the things that you think are maybe within reach? Uh, you know, I know it's, you know, for some don't feel like it's in reach, but I, I do think the In Child Poverty Act that I introduced that I know the Mama's Caucus has been really centering some of our work on, it, you know, it's a transformative bill, bill that would replace the child tax credit and the child provisions and the earned income tax credit. Both of these are so critical for our families, but they're not always working the way they were intended. And so the In Child Poverty Act would be a universal child benefit of, you know, close to $400 per month per child right at birth. You know, it's estimated that, I mean, right now, People's Policy Project showed that legislation would cut child poverty by 64% and cut deep child deep child poverty by 70%, which is really important because we don't talk about the deep uh, poverty uh, numbers that continue to come through. And so I, I truly feel like we need to revive, uh, I think, really the bipartisanship we saw years ago uh, in trying to end child poverty in our country. I mean, if you look at the earned income tax credit, it was both Republicans and Democrats that came together to do that. I, I think we're losing sight of that. And I know that our colleagues understand if we don't invest in our children early on at the beginning, we end up paying double or uh, triple the cost, not only for our society and our communities in the long run, but really just, you know, as a society, we just continue to fail over and over again and not making sure that our families uh, have the access to thrive. And so, those are one thing, but I can tell you implementation matters. And so, Stephen, you saw the number of bills from the American Rescue Plan mm-hmm. to the fact that we've introduced the Inflation Reduction Act. All of these have a number of policies. Yes, some focus on climate and so forth, but it can be very powerful to make sure that it's equitable in a way that it's accessible. Like, you know, some um, folks came to me and said, hey, you know, we got all this money coming in on broadband internet. We got all this money coming in to deal with climate justice, but, you know, are we centering around the needs of mothers in our country? You know, again, it's. I don't think people understand we can really be thoughtful and very meaningful in how we 
um, make sure that it's hitting the, the community. So if it's within the school system that we're doing climate justice work or fighting for, you know, breathe, breathe clean air or clean water, a number of things. But implementation matters. So we got to make sure that it's hitting the ground uh, in a way that touches people's lives immediately. And that's the problem. You know, I hear this from the Congressional Mamas Caucus, you know, especially folks that work within Mothering Justice. They always get studied. That's the first thing. Let's create a task force. Let's get studied. They've been studied enough. We know what the issues are. We just want to get to the point where now we have the resources and funds. How do we do it through the lens of a mother? Mm -hmm. How do we do it in a way that, again, I think would be very impactful for generations to come? Yeah. Um, Let's go to the phones here quickly. Joe in Rochester Hills. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Hey. Good. Go ahead. Good. Yeah, I just... uh, uh, for my 90-year-old mother, and uh, I also have some other uh, family things that I take care of that uh, need additional care, and uh, it's quite um, consuming, to say the least. Uh, but I, I manage pretty well. Um, but I, I've, I've reached out to try to get resources, uh, you know, physical as well as financial, and it's 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 almost non-existent right now. Um, and there's the acknowledgement of family, uh, taking care of family, uh, from a financial credit perspective, uh, or even, you know, just outright financial assistance. I don't, I haven't found it. Um, and it's hard, it's hard to get to. And, uh, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not wealthy, but, uh, you know, I'm okay. Middle class, say, uh, but I can imagine people that might have less resources than me. I mean, it's gotta be just unbelievable. Yeah. Joe, I, I really appreciate the call, and I don't want to cut you off, but we're going to run out of time, and I do want to give uh, Congresswoman Tlaib a chance to, to respond to that. We hear these stories all the time, uh, Rashida, mm-hmm. about people who are really struggling to find mm-hmm. support um, when you have to care for someone in your family. I've only got about 30 seconds left, but go ahead. Yeah. Just, Joe, every time we bring up their issue around child care and just care economy, long-term care and taking care of our, our mothers, our fathers, our grandparents, it constantly comes up. Because guess what? Mothers are literally, the mamas in our country are the ones take, you know, paying the toll of, mm-hmm. again, not having that safety net to take care of our families. So know that it is always at the forefront when we have these conversations uh, within the Congressional Mamas Caucus. Okay, uh, Rashida Talib, always great to have you here uh, on Detroit Today. And uh, we hope you, of course, have more success uh, getting more of this done in Congress. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And I want to apologize to Daniel Atkinson, who is the founder, the founding director of uh, Mothering Justice. Uh, We were unable to connect with her quite in time uh, for her to be on the show, but we will have her back sometime soon. That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow and we're going to have more great programming for you here on Detroit Today. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>